Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, that pinpoints the doctrinal problem that Paul is addressing in the Corinthian congregation. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he has raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're of all people most to be pitied. Paul is beside himself because the resurrection was the very core of the message that he brought to them that caused them to come to be Christians, to follow Christ. Now, in order to get a little better handle of this passage, I want you to understand that we are going to group the, uh, the, the verses from verse 12 through verse 34. And the way this is laid out, you've got an A, B, A grouping. A being a certain topic, B being a slightly different topic, and A being the same topic again. So what we're talking about is, in this order, in this arrangement, in this section, verses 12 through 34... The first section A and the the theme of that section is the problems that go along with saying that there is no resurrection. The theme of section B, verses 21 through 28, he pauses for a minute and celebrates the fact and the truth of the resurrection and the implications and the positive effects and the benefits of a resurrection. Then he ends up that section going back to the topic of A, and says, and here's more problems you have if you say there is no resurrection, A, B, A. So in the first section, A, Paul describes the utter foolishness of Christianity without a real and factual resurrection. And I'm just going to quickly list, summarize what he has says. The problem is, if you don't believe there is a resurrection, then first of all, The apostolic preaching and the Christian faith are both totally useless. Number two, Paul and his fellow laborers are liars and spreading false information because their message was a resurrection. If there is no resurrection, they're preaching a false doctrine. They're lying. Number three, 
If those things are so and there is no resurrection, he says we're all condemned because of our sins. Because our sins were not dealt with just because Jesus died. Our sins were dealt with completely because he rose again and conquered the grave. That's the rest of it. Number four, all those who have already died in the faith are hopelessly lost. So you're including all the saints throughout the history of man as being victims of a hoax. Number five, and this is probably the most piercing one, all believers should be pitied more than anybody else because we've embraced a fairy tale, we have collectively lived disciplined lives, denying ourselves worldly pleasures enjoyed by others, we've endured persecutions all for our belief. And if what we have believed and done all those things is not true, we are complete fools. If there is no resurrection, turn off the lights, go home, lock the doors. We are wasting our time here today. But there is a resurrection. Everything about Christianity, everything about Christianity literally crumbles if there is no resurrection. But see, the resurrection distinguishes Christianity from all other earthly religions. Many religions have a prophet they follow. Jesus was a prophet. Many religions have sacred writings they cherish. We have sacred writings, our Bible. Many religions have a deity they worship. We worship God. Some religions are much older than Christianity. Other religions have a spiritual founder like we do who once lived but now is dead. But no other religion, though they have those things in common with us, no other religion has a risen founder. We are totally unique in that aspect. No other religion puts all of their hope and all of their trust in the fact of the resurrection. All those other leaders, they've come, they've lived, they've died, they're gone. Jesus is still alive. He's alive because he's risen, and we have hope because of the reality of a resurrection. Now, in the second A section, because I'm going to pass over B section, and go to the second A section because it continues in the same flow of thought. In the second A section, starting in verse 29, Paul again addresses the problems that go along with the teaching that there is no resurrection. And it says there, now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Now, there's an interesting thing to talk about. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And the first thing he does is he calls out the Corinthians for their hypocrisy. If you do not believe there is a resurrection, what are you people doing carrying on this ritual to baptize for the dead? That's enshrouded in a little bit of a mysterious veil. We don't baptize for the dead. There is one major cult in the world today that reads that scripture and takes that as a prescription. They read where Paul mentioned to them, well, you are baptizing for the dead. And so this cult, it would be the Mormon church, baptizes for the dead. In other words, you can go and get baptized yourself in behalf of your loved ones. Now, folks, everything you read in the Bible is not necessarily what we call normative. And I don't mean normal. I mean normative as though it is the kind of thing that we are expected to do. It's very obvious there's some things that are written in the Bible that we are not supposed to emulate. Judas hanged himself. We're not to go and do likewise. The people in the Corinthian church baptized for the dead. We are not to go and do likewise. Now, Paul did not in this statement make an affirmation or a uh, condemnation of the act. He didn't have to. It was patently absurd. All he was doing was pointing out the fact that they were, ex they were performing this absurd ritual, baptizing for the dead, as though by doing so, they had hopes that that would have a positive, redeemable impact on the deceased. And then he turns around and says, and you don't believe there is any life after this life. What are you doing? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So he criticizes them, points out their hypocrisy. Why do you practice proxy baptism for the dead? But there's another point to be honestly considered. Since we don't have a lot of controversy over baptizing for the dead, there is something else that's going on here, and that is that you see the Corinthian church was doing something that a lot of people like to do. They were attaching something physical and something tangible to that which is intangible. By doing this proxy baptism, we also seem to like to put something tangible in place for the intangible. We like to be able to grab a hold of things. We like to be able to touch things. There wasn't anything about proxy baptism that did anything at all for the deceased. Neither would prayer, neither would anything else. It was, but, but they wanted to make this tangible thing because this material act catered to, this whims, to the whims of humanity. They just want to do things. You know, 
Peter had a problem with this when they were standing on that Mount of Transfiguration and, and Jesus was trying to teach them something. And Peter wanted to get tangible. He wanted to get materialistic. He said, let's, let's just do something. Let's build something. And that's that old human tendency that we have to be materially involved in something before it has its fullest uh, value and, and our fullest appreciation. But, you know, sometimes God just wants us to back off and quit trying to be so hands-on involved in things. And so in, in our culture, we still like to get a hold of things. And I, throughout my life, my ministry, I've seen a number of times that, that people have a burden for somebody else, a burden for the loved one. And their philosophy is, their thought is, well, if I go forward and I have the preacher pray for me and anoint me, my friend is going to be blessed. Now, folks, I don't mean to be rude or crude, but I ask you, why is that any different than proxy baptism? Why is it putting yourself in that place makes God any more powerful than just simply agreeing together in prayer? First of all, there's no biblical precedent for that. But you know what it does? It satisfies the human need to do something because God, what he does is invisible. It's not tangible. We don't see it. So if we can get busy and just make physical things happen, it makes us feel a whole lot better about it. But you know what you're really doing is you're insulting the sovereignty and the power of God to move without your help. He doesn't need your additional ways and means of doing things. And we, you remember the story of the, uh, uh, the man who came and, and, and asked Jesus to come. The centurion came and said, would you come and heal my servant? Would you, would you heal my servant? That's what he said. Would you heal my servant? And Jesus said, uh, would you like me to come to your house and heal him? And their servants, uh, the, the, the centurion said, no, I, you don't have to come to my house. You can just speak the word. Now, this man didn't know Jesus very well. And he certainly didn't have any New Testament developed doctrine that he could read and study about how God does things. We don't know that he had a, a real good understanding of, of, of God and how God works. He just came to Jesus and he, he had enough faith in what he knew about Jesus that he knew that they, they didn't have to go through the whole process of Jesus going to the house and laying his hands on the servant and doing a ritual. He just, he just shortcut the whole thing. He came to Jesus and said, my servant's sick. You can just speak the word. Now, which is greater? Going through all these meaningless actions and motions in hoping that God's going to honor what you do or simply believing that God is so powerful, so sovereign, he doesn't need our rituals. God, you can speak the word and it can be done. You don't need my help. You don't need all the additives we can put on that. I like whenever we honor God's sovereignty. I like when we highlight God alone, not God plus man, not God plus our plans, just God alone. A couple of Sundays ago, I had given an invitation for those seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit and had a couple of people respond to that. Now, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, 
I know what weirdness is. I got so used to it, I thought it was normal. And in all of my years of ministry, I've seen many people trying to help God in some very absurd ways. How many of you have seen anybody seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit that they were surrounded by a whole bunch of cheerleaders and coaches that really took it beyond what was reasonable? Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Well-intentioned, but you got somebody down there praying for the Holy Spirit and somebody's telling them to hold on and the other guy's telling them to let go. They don't know what to do. Had a, an evangelist out in California that gave a little seminar on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and he was telling what he does in order to help pray people through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And his technique was to have them start quoting the alphabet because his theory was if you get the tongue loosened up, it's a whole lot easier to get it slipped over into a language. And my heart just sunk because we've got all kinds of methods and means and gimmicks and gadgets and God doesn't need any help. So Angie came down right here. Didn't know you was going to be in my sermon today, did you? And we just had some people just... Just coming, prayerful support. No big fanfare. No bo- no, nobody <laughs> shaking, twisting arms. Just, just prayer. Quiet. God baptized her in the Holy Spirit because God is sovereign. He doesn't need our help. Well, the Corinthians thought, God needed a lot of help. So they come up with this weird thing about baptizing for the dead. The second thing Paul does is he asserts that he personally has acted like a fool if there was no resurrection. After all, he says, I have faced danger and death for the sake of the gospel, and if there is no resurrection, I've been on a fool's errand. Nobody should risk so much for a false message. A message without any hope. And then Paul, third, makes this shocking but true observation. If there is no resurrection, he shockingly suggests we would all be just as well off pursuing this life of self-indulgent pleasure. Because without a resurrection, when we die, it's all over. And at that point, it won't matter how you live this life. So you might as well just go out and eat, drink. Tomorrow we die, live carefree, because if there's no resurrection, it's going to be over one of these days, and you're missing out on an awful lot of fun and experiences that this world has to offer. But on the flip side, if there is a resurrection, you better tighten up. You can't live like that. Now we go back to section B, sandwiched between the two A's. But Christ has indeed been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Notice the celebrating, victorious, joyous tone of this compared to the tone of section A, if there is no resurrection. Look how doomy and gloomy everything is. But since there is a resurrection, he starts off with saying, but Christ has been resurrected. Fact. Undeniable. 
undisputable fact. And he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, and so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And when Paul said when he comes, now he's beginning to segue into another topic, and that is the coming, the second coming, the end times. And we'll watch how he develops that. Then the end will come when he hands the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. So going from this gloomy picture of just imagine how bad it would be to have a Christianity without a risen Christ, he now goes to what it means to be serving a real resurrected Savior. Everything that would be true if there was no resurrection is reversed by this passage. Those who have fallen asleep have not perished in vain. Faith and preaching are not in vain. Paul and the apostles are not liars because this is true. And we are not hopelessly condemned in our sins. But we are liberated by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Paul calls Jesus the first fruits. The fact of Christ's resurrection is the hope of our resurrection. The fact that he rose from the dead means that we shall rise from the dead. The first fruits is a word that indicates there is more to come. From the Old Testament when they would go out and take the first of their crop and offer it to God. It was a trust that because we have done this there will be more to come. Trusting and believing God will provide. So when Jesus is the first fruits and he presents himself to God... The resurrected Savior, he's saying to the Father, but there's more to come. I have opened the door. I've kicked open the tomb. I have destroyed the stronghold of death. And I'm not the only one, but those who will follow me, they will be resurrected. And then Paul immediately goes to the timing of the resurrection. Talking about the end times. And he has this perfect opportunity to segue into this teaching on the resurrection in the end times. The end will come. And having destroyed all powers and forces that stand in opposition to God, Christ will then deliver the kingdom to his Father. And the Bible says, and he must reign 
until all enemies are under his feet. Now this is a clear reference to what we call the millennium. Most of you are acquainted with the term. In case there's anybody here that's not quite clear on what we mean when we say the millennium, that is a thousand years when Jesus will return to this earth and set up his kingdom and reign for a thousand years here on earth. Now, you have to understand, when we enter into the millennium, nothing materially has changed about this world. When Jesus sets up his kingdom, you don't suddenly have all the buildings and all the cities and all the streets and all of the everything we have just disappears and it becomes like ancient man of the Garden of Eden. We still have all of these things in the world. We still have all of our technology. We still have everything. And we enter into the millennium with the same physical world. Doesn't mean things aren't going to begin to change from that point out. Doesn't mean that it's going to be exactly the same at the end of the millennium as it is at the beginning. But when we enter into the millennium, it's going to be this present world as is entering into that. If the world is not going to be changed and transformed by fire until the end. At the end of the millennium. But entering in, this world goes into the millennium. You still have the, the world, the nations around the world, uh, everything is unchanged. But when Jesus comes, he begins to change things. And one of the first things he changes is, I'm in charge now. Everywhere. Every nation, every tribe, I'm in charge. Nobody else has the power to say that. Nobody can accomplish that. It's too complicated. People will not cooperate. He doesn't need their cooperation to make this happen. He is in charge. And he will take control. Now, the problem is, this unsaved world that we're living in today is largely unaware of what is in the near future for the entire world. If you go out into the world, wherever you hang out, at your workplace, wherever you, your neighborhood, and you start pe asking people what they think about the millennium, you're going to get a lot of blank stares. Because for the most part, people don't understand what that means when you say the millennium. Are you looking forward to the millennium? What is that, a new movie? What are you talking about? New policy? What's the millennium? Try it. See how many people understand the code you're talking. The world doesn't have a clue. The world is marching on without any concept whatsoever of what is just about to happen in our future. The world is busy developing new technology at an unprecedented rate. Do you realize 
that we are going to develop more new technology in the next 10 to 15 years than we have in all the history of man put together. In 15 years, making more technological advancement than since the beginning of man. That's how fast it's moving. What they are able to do with our science and our technology today and their understanding and the, and the power of the computers has opened a door that this is going to go at a breakneck speed, how fast. The only thing that's limiting how fast we see these things in our hands is, of course, business. You know, feed, feed the line a little slowly. Don't overwhelm them. But the, what they're discovering, they are able to do. The revelations of this, just moving at breakneck speed. And the, the world is pressing on with discoveries and inventions. And nobody sees that that is not the future of humankind here on earth. Jesus won't need cell phones. Just think about it. He won't need email. He can rule without the technology. He doesn't need it. The nations of the world are working together through things like the United Nations to unilaterally put an end to world problems like global warming, to advance customized rights to fringe special interest groups like gays and lesbians and transgenders. They're working in united fronts to bring about a transformation to this world. None of them realize this is not the future of humans here on earth. Jesus won't make any exceptions for special interest groups. That, th th this has a short shelf life. It's not the future. Nations are working together through world organizations to try and tackle environmental problems and health problems and food shortage problems, trying to make this planet endure far past its expiration date. But none of them understand this is not the future of humans here on earth. Jesus won't need more environmental regulations and global warming impact studies and programs because the master of the sea is here. The one who speaks and the winds obey is here. He's in control of everything. He's in control of nature. He won't need that. That's not the future. The future of humans here on earth is that very soon Jesus is going to return. Look around you. How many of you think we really have another 4,000 years left here on earth? We're bumping up around 7, 8 billion people right now. We are having problems on this crowded planet. We are occupying about all the inhabitable spaces that we can occupy. They're thinking about how to colonize Mars. They're thinking about how to build underwater houses and homes so you can live under the ocean. They're trying to figure out how are we going to survive? How are we going to feed the world population? They're starting to think about thinning the herd. They've been getting rid of babies by the millions because they don't want extra population here. They've been limiting how many children you can have around the world. 
They've been trying to tackle this problem that they see is coming, but they don't know what to do about it. The future of humans here on this earth is coming to a crashing end. I said, you don't think we have 4,000 more years unless we have some sort of a cataclysmic event that comes along and wipes out most of the earth and starts all over again? But that's not going to happen. That's not the way God has it planned. What's going to happen in the future? Jesus is going to come back. All these problems that we're trying to figure out, what are we going to do? I know the man that has the answer to every one of them. They'll all be solved. Every one of them. He will set up his throne in Jerusalem. And he will begin his worldwide earthly reign. And all the nations will submit. I promise you. There will be no dissension. No successful dissension. Oh, some won't like it. There will be no successful dissension. There will be no opting out. Iran and North Korea won't threaten him with nuclear weapons. There won't be any protest marches or riots that will have any impact or success. There won't be any sanctions against Jerusalem. They won't work. There won't be any military resistance that will have any impact. Every nation, every dictator, every king, every prime minister, every president, every earthly leader will surrender their power willingly or not because Jesus didn't come back to reign over Jerusalem or over Israel or over the Middle East. He came to reign over the entire world and he will do that. And he will reign until all his enemies have been put under his feet. And we don't vote on him every four years. He's here for a thousand years. Get used to it. There's not going to be 4,200 religions anymore in the world. Just one religion. Jesus Christ is Lord the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, and all will be forced to worship him. Now, the president said something the other day that threw somebody into a tizzy. He said, you know, which one, right? <laughs> he said, uh, we Americans don't worship government, we worship God. I don't care what you think of the president or what he said the point is there was one writer that responded and said you can't tell us who we have to worship or what we have to worship or we can't worship well see this guy doesn't understand the future because when Jesus gets here, we're not going to have this attitude about you can't tell me what I have to do. Jesus can, and he will. He never demanded anybody worship him. He accepted worship when he walked here on earth. It was in a different sphere in the earthly realm. But when he comes and he sets up his throne, there's no more choice. He will declare himself, I am the great I am. I am the Lord thy God. I am the king. I am the Lord. And I will not put up with anybody not respecting that. You will worship me. 
this won't be a happy time for some people. They have to. They have no choice. 1,000 years of peace. All the rebellion completely shut down. No more wickedness. Take a drive through the Quad Cities. You see wickedness everywhere. It's an interesting little cluster of towns you have here. When I first came, the one thing that stood out to me is, my goodness, there's a bar on every corner. That doesn't work in Christ's millennium. Your former pastor, Tommy Barnett, mounted a, a campaign against the strip clubs here. Put together enough influence and power, confronted the city, got some things changed and some things shut down. That's just a little microscopic example of how Christ is going to handle this. Shut them down, shut them down, shut them down. You're out of business. Stop that. You're not going to do that anymore. Now we're going to do things my way. You've done it your way 6,000 years. Now we're going to do it my way. It's all getting ready to happen, people. How long do you think we have? Really, how long do you think we have? With all the problems, insurmountable problems, with nations arming themselves with nuclear weapons, with wild, mad dictators threatening to detonate nuclear bombs on other nations and bomb us. This is, we're sitting on a powder keg. How long do you think we have? Jesus is coming back before we self-destruct. He's not going to come back and find a charcoal He's going to walk into this mess and straighten it out. How long do you think we have? Never before has that phrase been so relevant and so pertinent. Jesus is coming soon. No more rebellion. No more wickedness. No more drought. No more starvation. He fixes those things. Greatest environmentalist that ever, ever was. The desert's going to bloom like a rose. No contention, no problems. No more danger anywhere because the lion is going to lay down by the lamb. No more dying because Paul said when he comes and he puts all enemies under his feet, the last enemy he's going to destroy is death. Now he's conquered death already, but people are still dying. But when he comes and destroys death, people will live for a thousand years and not die. Now, I had a lady that got all upset because I think it's Isaiah says, and a child shall die a hundred years old. So she's saying, evidently, the Bible says there will continue to be death through the millennium. Now, in case that throws your mind into a tizzy, let me just put you at ease. First of all, it's just a figure of speech trying to express that if a child would die at a hundred years old, if somebody should die at 100 years old, they would be but a mere child if they did. So it's not guaranteeing people will die. The second thing is, there will, there will be death in the millennium. It, 
It doesn't sneak on, sneak up and get you with cancer and heart attacks and murders. It's because you disobeyed Christ. He executed immediately. So yeah, there will be it'll be purposeful, focused, but it won't be the kind of death that is out there prowling like a monster in the dark, sneak up on and sneaking up on you because Christ has conquered that kind of death. And we will live and reign with him for a thousand years. What's that got to do with the resurrection? Paul's talking to them about the resurrection. Because if there is no resurrection, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then he's not coming again. If he's not coming again, we have no hope. And this world is a mess. But he's risen. And he's coming again. And he's going to conquer all his enemies and put them under his feet. And the last enemy he's going to conquer is death. Death that snuck in when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and brought the curse on the world. And he's going to come and lift the curse and conquer death. And no more dying. No more crying. No more pain. I'm looking forward to the coming of the Lord. I don't see any future for this world. No more burying our loved ones. No more death, no more pain. And like John wrote at the end of his great revelation, after he had seen all that was in the future, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Would you bow your heads?